what is he up to <laughs> now? We'll get to that in a moment. Last night, six of us flew back from Sacramento where we visited the first meeting of the Presbytery of the Pacific, the new Presbytery of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, of which we would be a part. I wrote about it in anticipation on your family life letter. I hope you'll take a look at it. Of course, we didn't know what we would experience. We were hoping that we would find the things that I described, and I'm just delighted to tell you that we found that and more. Christ-centered, prayer-filled, Holy Spirit-filled, uh, relational, uh, missional. It was a wonderful place, and it would be a good home for us. Your session is going to be meeting tonight for a special meeting, and we're going to be considering this matter for a, for a vote. So be praying for us, and we'll be in touch with you as to uh, the next steps for us as a congregation. Well, what's this all about? Last Monday, zombies invaded New York City. How many saw the, the news? Uh, they were protesting corporate greed in this country. I wasn't aware that zombie, zombies cared about uh, corporate greed. As, as you know, uh, zombies are the living dead. And right now they are all the craze in America. As a Washingtonian, you would be proud to know that last July, Seattle hosted the largest gathering of zombies ever. 4,522 of them lurched their way into Fremont. What a big surprise, Fremont. <laughs> the company Zyco, Zombie Apocalyptic Insurance Company, offers policies to protect you and your family from, quote, class three zombie outbreak losses. In the year 2000, there were 10 zombie movies that were produced. In 2010, 67 zombie movies were produced. And in 2009, how many of you read Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice somewhere? In 2009, a rewrite of her novel called Pride and Prejudice and Zombies hit number three on the New York Times bestselling list. So how do we spot these zombies? There is some helpful information on the web. Um, here's what I've discovered. They are, quote, uncommunicative, unable to form a sentence, may groan, have poor bodily hygiene, bad breath, frequent flatulence, and an insatiable urge to grab you, unquote. For some of you wives, a light bulb has gone on in your head. I married a zombie. With this cultural obsession, it seemed like a perfect opportunity to preach a sermon series on zombies. But you would fairly ask, what in the world does that have to do with the Bible? I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to show it to you. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 and following. And I want you to find the zombies in our reading. All right? Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 and following. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, 
and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all the kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Turn to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from any tree in, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, speak to us now through this ancient passage of scripture. May it be for us not a myth, but the living and true word of God. And may we be changed because we have read it and heard it. In Jesus' name, amen. So, did you see them? Where did the zombies show up in this account? What verse? Verse, 15, verse 17. Take a look at it. I want you to keep your Bibles open. We're going to be flipping through it today. Verse 17. But you not, must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... For when you eat of it, you will surely what? Now, we know the end of the story, right? Adam and Eve did eat of the forbidden fruit. So, when they ate of it, did they die? Yes or no? Yes and no. Yeah, see, Jesus, Cindy said, that's the answer when in doubt. Yes, Jesus. <laughs> the answer is no and yes. They were still breathing, weren't they? They did not drop dead and die. Their hearts didn't stop beating. They didn't stop breathing, uh, breathing in the moment that they ate of that fruit. But everything started to fall apart in that moment. Everything in that garden began to deteriorate. Their bodies, their relationships with each other, their relationships with themselves, their relationship with God, their relationship with the earth, their relationship with their work. All of it in that moment began to die. And so in that moment, those first human beings became the living dead. They were alive and yet they were dead. What's the definition of the living dead? I rest my case. Gig Harbor is full of zombies. Not like the ones, perhaps, that you saw in those pictures. They aren't that easy to recognize. In fact, on the outside, many of them look just very much alive. They even look pretty good. But something entered the world that day in the garden that went and went viral and began gnawing away at the most essential parts of what it means to be human in this world. So what is this enemy that entered the garden called? What is it called? Yes. Say sin. For most of our culture, sin is a church word that means nothing, isn't it? And even for those of us inside of the church, we think more of sins. The list of all those fun but naughty things that we're not supposed to do because God said so and because he's a big killjoy. Christians are accused of being narrow and judgmental because we are so obsessed with all of this sin stuff. Just get off my back. Let me live life my way. Stop being so critical. Isn't that the cry of our culture? Stop being so judgmental. Leave me alone. 
But what if sin were more than a list of naughty things that you're not supposed to do? What if sin is a deadly disease? What if we change the world word from sin to a world that we know well and take seriously? A word like cancer. Soul cancer. There are a lot of you in this room this morning who have had a, a brush with cancer. Anyone want to admit? Raise their hand and say, I've had a brush with it. Okay. And more of you that don't choose to raise your hand. When you got that awful news, when the mammogram came back, or the PSA test came back, or the biopsy came back, and someone said, you've got cancer, did you think that was a big deal? Did you get a little obsessed with it? Did you begin to search the web and do research and find the best doctor and, and plan your best attack against this disease because you knew that it was a deadly enemy? Did any of your friends say to you, just lighten up? You're taking this whole cancer thing way too seriously. You're freaking out over nothing. It's no big deal. Did they say that? Probably not. And if they did, they're probably not your friend anymore. But when it comes to sin, our friends say, lighten up. It's no big deal. And this is a mistake, beloved. Sin is deadly. More deadly than the big C. If we don't face it, if we don't get help, you know what the mortality rate is on this cancer? 100%. If we don't face it, if we don't get help, that's what happens. So, beloved, I, I want us to face it. I want us to face sin, look it square in the eye, because only when we know it that it is there, and only when we understand how destructive it is, can we take the good news that we're talking about this year, that good news cure, and offer it. To ourselves and to our friends. If we don't take it seriously, there is no good news because there's no good and there's no bad news. So if you want to understand what is wrong with the human race, we need to go back to the beginning. And that's what Genesis is about. It means beginning. The beginning of all things. In chapter 2 of the book of Genesis, we read how sin came into the world in a garden called Eden. And when we read this story, we might be tempted to say, wow, what a bummer. What a bummer that Adam and Eve did that, disobeyed God, got kicked out of the paradise. Sucks to be them. The problem is that's not the end of the story, is it? This is not just about Adam and Eve, these words that we read here. They, it's not just about these first human beings. Who else is it about? Point to yourself. It is about me. Say it is about me. The moment Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and eat of that forbidden fruit... The moment they introduced disobedience into creation, they were infected. Or maybe I should say defected. Sin is a genetic defect. It is passed down through the bloodline from one generation to the next. Every single human being, everyone is defected. Total depravity, that's what Reformed theology calls it. We absolutely believe it. Every one of us is sin sick. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians. He said, for in Adam, all die. Not much wiggle room there, is it? In Adam, all die. All of his successors, all of the generations that follow, all die. In, in Romans, he says, for all have sinned and what? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not some, not most, not everyone, but Mother Teresa. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And later on, he says this, and the wages of sin is what? Death. If you sin, what you deserve to get paid is death. The wages of sin. So, all have sinned 
All will die. That's the prognosis. This is a bad verdict. Wouldn't you agree? Nod your head vigorously. This is bad news. We are the descendants of Adam and Eve. The Bible says so. Interestingly now, so does science. More and more scientists, in fact, most scientists, according to John Lennox in his new book, agree that we are descended from a single pair, human pair. Did you know that? And most of uh, most scientists uh, believe that and and that we carry their original genetic material within us. Suddenly, science is saying what for 2000 years Christian theology has been saying. So science and Paul are, are in agreement on this one. Which means that every one of us is defected with sin. We all have soul cancer. We all fall short of God's glory and we will all die because of it. So as it turns out, it not only sucks to be them, it sucks to be us too. So what happened? How did we get into this mess? How did we become zombies, the living dead, all because of an apple? The popular impression is that the story of Genesis portrays God as a grouchy, demanding killjoy who picks on helpless human beings. Is that right? Let's do some detective work and see what the story that I just read really says, okay? In Genesis 1, how did God create? Smoke. He said it. He said, let there be. By His Word, He created all things, and all things were created in heaven and on earth, all of the universe. He spoke, (coughs) and it happened. Now in Genesis 2, God is still creating but here we come to the, a description of the most tender moment in the creation story. God leans down and he scoops up some dirt and he plays in the dirt. How many of you loved to play in the dirt when you were a kid? God loved to play in the dirt. And when God plays in the dirt, watch out. Because the account says that he shaped man out of the stuff that already existed by his word. Then he leans down and we read, he breathed his breath. You know what the word for breath is in the Old Testament? Spirit. Ruach. It's his spirit. Holy spirit. He breathed Holy Spirit life into that first human that he had formed by playing in the dirt. And suddenly humanity was animated with the very spirit of God. That is the crowning achievement. It's the crowning glory of God's creation. That moment when God was playing in the dirt. But it turns out God is not done yet. He's made a man now. He wants to make a place for him to live. And so he plants this garden and he makes trees to grow in the garden. What do we learn about the trees in verse 9? Take a look. What do we learn about the trees in verse 9? They were what? Pleasing for the eye and good for food. They looked good. They tasted good. It wasn't enough, apparently, that God was going to sustain this man, give him enough to live on. God makes Adam with the ability to enjoy beauty. He makes him with the ability to enjoy taste. And then he surrounds him with beautiful and luscious things. Pleasing to the eye. Food that tastes good. If any human beings in the world should understand the wonder of God's glorious creation, should it not be we who live in Gig Harbor? Because we look around us, and here's what you need to say. Next time you look at the mountain, next time you look at the harbor, God gave that for me to enjoy, to delight in, so that my aesthetic values would be pleased, would be touched. 
Think about it as a parent who's watching a kid open Christmas presents. That was God's eagerness on that first day in creation, on the first moment with Adam. God blesses, places the man in this beautiful and luscious garden, and then he speaks again. Take a look. Verse 16. And the moment we read these first words, we say, okay, here it comes. Here it comes, the grouchy God stuff. Do you see it there? What are the first words of the grouchy God verse? Say it. Read it. Verse 16. And the Lord God, what? Commanded the man. There God goes, bossing us around again. Commanding us to do stuff. So what is this burdensome command that God gives to him? Watch out now. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. All those beautiful trees that I gave you, all that luscious fruit that looks so good, smells so good, tastes so good, those juicy peaches, beautiful papayas, sweet cherries, and crisp apples. Yes, the apples, he says. I command you to eat them. All of them I command you to eat up and you will enjoy it. I command you to take delight in this world that I have created. What an ogre. How awful and demanding to boss us around like that, to order us to do what? To enjoy life, to eat and drink and look and smell and taste and find pleasure. He is horrible, a monstrous God. Wait a second. This doesn't seem quite right, does it? Isn't the story of Eden about what they weren't supposed to do, about what was forbidden? But notice where the story starts. It begins with a gracious, generous God who is having fun creating humanity and then having fun preparing for them a glorious garden that is beautiful and tasty and aromatic and delightful in every way. And then God commands them, take and eat and smell and enjoy. I give it to you for your pleasure. God creates us and he gives us a beautiful place to live and then he floods us with permission. Permission to live and to eat and to marvel and to smell. Permission to soak up this good world that he created for us. It is only then that God gives one prohibition. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat of it you will surely die. One tree right in the middle of the garden, tree of knowledge. The only thing forbidden Adam... He was warned, if you eat of that tree, on that day you will die. But it's just that one. All the rest of it, bon appetit. But that's not the way we remember the story, is it? That's not the way the world remembers the story. We only remember the prohibition. We only remember the no. And we forget that God ever, that before God ever said no, he first said yes, 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 yes. And that's where the story starts, and that's where I want to start this series. Many would say that you sum up Christianity with one word. No! That is certainly the world's view of us, a big list of all the things that we are forbidden to do. A joy-stealing, life-sucking list of prohibitions. In fact, some Christian folks see themselves in this way too. That Christianity is about keeping all the rules, about being good, about behaving in a way that will make God happy and earn us brownie points. So both inside and outside of Christianity, it is viewed as a religion of no. But what does our story tell us? What does our foundational story about creation of humanity tell us? 
It is not, first of all, about no. It is not even mostly about no. It is about yes. God's big yes. His gracious creation. His delight in us. His particular attention to us. And His permission to, t- to us to, to take delight in and enjoy the life that He has given us. Of course, we know the rest of the story. The minute God says, there's one little thing that is forbidden you. Where do they go? Right to that one thing with disastrous results. They chose to live in the no. They went for the no and had had disastrous results. We're going to talk more about that in the weeks to come. But I want to start here. I want to start here today. How do we live in God's yes? How do we live in God's yes? After all, we have that defective sin gene in our blood. Paul tells us so. Isn't it too late for us? Haven't we been kicked out of the garden? We missed our shot at life, didn't we? Thanks to those screw-up great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents of ours called Adam and Eve. They blew it for us. (coughs) Well, yes, that's true. But the good news is, Paul says, we have a second Adam. That's what Paul calls him. The second Adam. Our second Adam came and lived in perfect obedience And he purified our bloodstream. And he removed our defective gene. Who is this new Adam? (laughs) Good answer, Cindy. (laughs) Do you remember what Jesus, the new Adam, the second Adam, said to his followers? He said, I came that I might make life miserable for you. Was that right? I I came that I'm going to pile great burdens upon you so that it's just onerous to live. He said, I came that you might have. And he couldn't even stop there. He said, no, not just life. What kind of life? Abundant life that bubbles over. That's why I came for you. Doesn't that sound good? I want to give you another shot at the garden, Jesus says. I want you to taste of the goodness of God's intention for you. I want you to taste of God's yes. So how do we do it? Work harder? Be better? Follow all of Jesus' rules? How do we live in God's yes? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. First one, verse, uh, chapter, 2 Corinthians, chapter, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm not hearing a lot of paper turning out there. Verse 20. I want us to read that together. Ready? Go. For no matter how many promises God has made... They are yes in Christ. Let's read that one again, shall we? For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. All of the promises that God has made starting at the beginning of creation to this present day find their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. Beth Burgess was a part of a group that went down to the EPC Presbytery this last couple of days. And uh, she was telling me of a Burgess family tradition. It's called Just Say Yes Day. On the first day of summer vacation, whatever her kids ask her, the answer is yes. Now, there's a rule. They can't treat her like a slave. But if it's reasonable, the answer is yes. If they want to play video for two hours, the answer is they Want to go to Kelly's to eat? The answer is, if they want breakfast for dinner, the answer is yes. Her kids can't wait for that day. 
And she just enjoys being able to say yes to her kids about everything that they love and want to do. What would happen to our life, to our witness to others, if we lived life as if every day was a just say yes day? Not about making God our slave, not about bossing him around, not about presenting a whole list of wish lists. This is what we want our big Santa Claus in the sky to do for us. But what if we assumed that God was actually tickled with us? What if we assumed that we were going to live in the pleasure of his yes, actually that God enjoys hanging out with us? That he's excited to show off the paradise that he has created for us. What if we assume those things? What if we assume that he really wants us to experience all of his promises? Promises he has made like, can my life have purpose? What's the answer? Yes. Can my marriage really thrive and not just survive in Christ? The answer is can I really be satisfied with the way I look? The answer is yes. Can I really be delivered from the guilt of my past? The answer is can my work really have meaning and purpose? The answer is yes. Christian zombies live their life and witness as if God is one big fat no. They're gloomy, hopeless, pessimistic and bleak. They assume God is out to steal their joy, that his limitations are meant to make us miserable. They seldom experience the abundant life that Jesus promised because they never really believe that in Jesus Christ the promises of God all are yes. And I will be honest with you. There's a part of me that lives that way sometimes, too. I wish it were not true. I've told you that anxiety is one of my lead spiritual gifts. <laughs> and when I get anxious or stressed out, I can mope around like Eeyore. Who wants to hang out with Eeyore? What kind of good news can Eeyore possibly have to share? So here's the good news. Yes, we have a sin issue that needs to be dealt with. And Jesus has dealt with it. But that is neither the start nor the end of it. Jesus wants to get the sin issue out of the way so that we can live in God's yes. And in the year of good news, I would ask you, what is the good news out of this story that you would share with others? And maybe starting with yourself. Here it is. God's word to us is yes. It is positive. It is permissive. It is empowering. It is extravagant. And it is good. Now, does that sound like good news? What is God's promise to us in Jesus? Yes. yes. Say it again. Yes. Let us pray. What an amazing awareness that is, God, that in Jesus, all of your promises are yes. We don't have to fulfill them. We can't fill them. But when Christ lives within us, when we belong to him, when we say yes to him, we say yes to all of you, your promises too. And yet many of us don't live as if we really believe this. We live as if life is a no. We live as if you are a no. And so we live like zombies, alive but dead. So, God, bring us back to life, all of us. Give us hope, optimism. Help us to believe that you really are at work for good in our lives. Help us to believe that your Holy Spirit can change that which is pessimistic and gloomy and bleak and make it positive and hopeful. Not by dent of our, uh, our will or our effort, but by the work of your Spirit who breathed life into the first human being 
and wants to breathe life into us right now. Breathe into us, God, your spirit, your ruach, your Holy Spirit. Animate us so that we might live in your yes. For we ask this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen.